It's time to learn real American economics. Part two, the road to serfdom, Hayek, the imperial sophist. The first thing to understand about the Austrian school of economics is that it doesn't exist. What Hayek, von Mises, and others put forward is not Austrian at all. It is imperial British economics, specifically the economics of the 19th century British Empire. The Road to Serfdom, certainly Friedrich Hayek's most widely read work, was published in 1944. Perhaps a more fitting title might have been Lord Acton Speaks, for the work is literally strewn with quotations from Acton. Lord Acton was a British aristocrat who became a vocal and ardent supporter of the Confederacy during the American Civil War. After the South's surrender, Acton wrote to Robert E. Lee that, quote, I mourn for the stake which was lost at Richmond more deeply than I rejoice over what was saved at Waterloo. I deem that you were fighting battles for our liberty, our progress, and our civilization, unquote. In 1869, Acton was raised to the peerage by Queen Victoria, right about the time Victoria was taking personal control over the narcotics trafficking in India and China. In addition to Lord Acton, other individuals idolized by Hayek and repeatedly named by him include John Stuart Mill and his father James Mill, both lifelong employees of the British East India Company at a time when that company was killing millions in India. James Mill was a protege of Jeremy Bentham, author of In Defense of Usury and In Defense of Pederasty, and the promoter of the hedonistic calculus, which states that all human and economic activity is driven by a desire for individual pleasure. Another of Hayek's icons is the first Viscount Morley of Blackburn, who was the Secretary of State for India between 1905 and 1911, and Lord President of the King's Privy Council between 1910 and 1914, from which position he played a leading role in orchestrating events leading into World War I. Hayek calls Viscount Morley, quote, the last of the great 19th century liberals, unquote. Others named glowingly by Hayek are Henry Sedgwick, A.V. Dicey, and Thomas Babington Macaulay, the first Baron Macaulay. Sedgwick and Dicey were both followers of Jeremy Bentham. At Cambridge, Sidgwick taught the young Bertrand Russell, while Dicey became a professor of law at the London School of Economics, where he popularized the phrase rule of law, a term often heard today, but one which, as defined by both Dicey and Hayek, bears no resemblance at all to U.S. constitutional law. Uh, Maca Macaulay served as Britain's Secretary of War for between 1839 and 1841, 
where he directed the military attacks on China during the genocidal First Opium War. He, too, was a member of Queen Victoria's Privy Council. Of all the British politicians from earlier generation, Hayek's deepest admiration goes to William Gladstone, three times Prime Minister and four times Chancellor of the Exchequer. Like Lord Acton, Gladstone was a passionate supporter of the Southern Confederacy and viewed the Civil War as a means to, de to destroy the American Republic. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1861 when the City of London and the British monarchy attempted to bankrupt the U.S. government and strong-arm Abraham Lincoln into accepting Southern secession. In October 1862, Gladstone made a speech in which he said that Jefferson Davis had made a nation and that it was now the duty of the European powers to offer friendly aid in bringing an end to the quarrel. During Gladstone's term as Prime Minister, he also became an enforcer of what some have called the imperialism of free trade, launching numerous of Queen Victoria's colonial wars to enforce British financial hegemony worldwide. These are Hayek's heroes. Every one of them is British. They are mostly aristocrats, some murderers. Not a one of them is American. These are the individuals Hayek returns to again and again. Gladstone, Acton, Mill, etc. Not to Lincoln, not to Washington, not to Franklin, not to Hamilton. It is the British oligarchical outlook that Hayek worships. This, to him, is the high point of human civilization. Subhead. Tricking the gullible. For those who have not read The Road to Serfdom, let me spare you the pain. For all of the verbiage, it is essentially a Johnny One-Note production. Or as Judy Garland would sing, Poor Johnny One-Note sang out with gusto and just overlorded the place. Poor Johnny One-Note yelled willy-nilly until he was blue in the face. For holding one note was his ace. Hayek's message, his one-note repeated ad nauseum, is liberty and freedom good, totalitarianism and collectivism bad. That's it. That's his one-note. That's all he really says. It is a message designed for simpletons, which he pounds on over and over, like the ominous beating of a drum to galley slaves. Repetitive beyond belief, the road to serfdom proclaims the pre-1900 British era of laissez-faire economics as the golden age of mankind. Never mentioned is the fact that from 1776 to 1900, 
the British Empire murdered far, far more human beings in India, Africa, China, the Caribbean, and elsewhere than Adolf Hitler uh, ever dreamed of. Um, uh, also never mentioned is that during those same decades, the British Empire was the mortal enemy of the American Republic. Those realities are verboten topics, and they never appear in Hayek's narrative. In chapter 15, Hayek actually makes the incredible assertion, quote, I believe the standards of decency and fairness, particularly with regard to international affairs, to be as high, if not higher, in England than in any other country, unquote. What Hayek is actually presenting is the seductive lore of the serpent in paradise who offers freedom and liberty in order to recruit you into Satan's work. Hayek simply lies and misrepresents as he entices you into supporting policies which have been the actual historical enemy of the principles of the American Republic. What Hayek demands is that you limit your judgment to a simple binary choice. Quote, are you for liberty or freedom? Or are you for totalitarianism and collectivism? But this is a rigged choice. Rational people will obviously opt for freedom and liberty, but what exactly do freedom and liberty mean to Hayek? Is this an honest game that he is playing? Subhead. Man as a paranoid animal. The subject of oligarchical versus republican culture uh, will be the subject of the next installment of this series of articles. For now, let's take an introductory peek into Hayek's lack of human morality. Hayek shrieks fiercely against collectivism, and he wraps himself in what he calls individualism, a term that, that his sometimes friend Ayn Rand would later take to psychedelic, psychedelic extremes. Hayek declares the notion of the individual and individual rights to be paramount. However, this obviously begs the question, which Hayek never explores. What exactly is the individual? What does it mean to be a human being? Demonstrating an unbelievable shallowness of thinking in presenting his concept of individual liberty, Hayek plagiarizes from the Anglo-American, from the Anglo-Dutch agent John Locke, and from his two treatises of government, particularly from Locke's discussion of human freedom, as having derived from man's natural condition in a state of nature. Throughout the road to serfdom, 
there are also echoes of another Anglo-Dutch agent, Bernard de Mandeville, and his peon to oligarchical culture, The Fable of the Bees. That work proposes that a, a harmonious society may be obtained if each individual acts purely on the basis of their own selfish wants and desires. From there, it is only a matter of degree from Mandeville and Locke to Thomas Hobbes' notion of each in a war of all against all as the basis for what Hayek calls beneficent human competition. To support this pessimistic view of human individualism and the human condition, one where we are all reduced to animals, Hayek makes an outrageous assertion that his definition of individualism flows from the European Renaissance. It is in this argument, one he returns to repeatedly, where he asserts that human beings are condemned to exist in a state of ignorance as to both the nature of the universe and the workings of the economy. Consider that one of the most influential literary and scientific works of the Renaissance was Nicholas of Cusa's On Learned Ignorance, a work wherein Cusa describes how man proceeds from ignorance to the discovery of universal, truthful, scientific principles. This is grounded in the Christian concept of Imago Dei. Hayek's beliefs are actually pre-Christian, as he insists that the human individual exists within a hostile world, one where universal truth is unknowable, and that events are governed by mysterious forces beyond his control. If you think I am exaggerating, consider Hayek's explicit view of the human individual as it relates to economics. He says, quote, The only alternative to submission to the impersonal and seemingly irrational forces of the market is submission to an equally uncontrollable and therefore arbitrary power of other men. It was men's submission to the impersonal forces of the market that has made possible the growth of civilization, unquote. For Hayek, the market has replaced God's lawful creation, and it is unknowable and, in, and it is an unknowable and incomprehensible force that all men must bow before. Subhead. Goodbye National Sovereignty. In chapter 15, Hayek's attacks on collectivism and totalitarianism are exposed as a smokescreen. The mask comes off, and he zeroes in on his true targets, the sovereignty of the nation-state and American economic methods. The entirety of chapter 15, titled, quote, the prospects of an international order, unquote, 
is a sustained attack on the principle of national sovereignty. Hayek says, quote, economic transactions between national bodies uh, who are at the same time the supreme judges of their own behavior, who bow to no superior law, and whose representatives cannot be bound by any considerations but the immediate interest of their respective nations, must end in clashes of power. We cannot hope for order or lasting peace uh, if, a, if it, after this war starts, larger, we cannot hope for order or lasting power after this war if states, large or small, regain unfettered sovereignty in the economic sphere. The extent of the control over all life that economic control confers is nowhere better illustrated than in the field of foreign exchanges. Experience of most continental countries has taught thoughtful people to regard this step as the decisive advance on the path to totalitarianism and the suppression of individual liberty. Unquote. In reality, the invention of, moder of the modern sovereign nation-state was one of the crowning achievements of the Renaissance. Hayek now condemns national sovereignty to death. In its place, he proposes a supranational international authority which will impose British imperial free finance and free trade on every nation. Hayek states, quote, an international authority which effectively limits the power of the state over the individual will be one of the best safeguards of peace. The form of international government under which certain strictly defined powers are transferred to an international authority, while in all other respects the individual countries remain responsible for their internal affairs, is of course that of federation. The powers which must devolve on an international authority are not the new powers assumed by the states in recent times, but essentially the powers of the ultra-liberal, laissez-faire state. The need for such a supranational authority becomes indeed greater as the individual states more and more become units of economic administration. The actors, rather than merely the supervisors of the economic uh, uh, scene. Unquote. Hayek doesn't stop there. He is too clever to attack Abraham Lincoln and Alexander Hamilton by name, so he turns his wrath on the German-American economist Friedrich List. Today, List is most famous for his 1841 work, The National System of Political Economy, but he actually lived in, in, uh, in Pennsylvania from 1821 to 1839, became an American citizen, and in 1831 authored a work 
titled Outlines of American Political Economy. List was a fierce defender of the American Republic, and in his writings, he showed how the British financial and economic laissez-faire methods were intended, intended to secure worldwide British imperial domination. For these heretical views, Hayek declares List and his writings to be totalitarian. Next week, Part 3, Hayek's Constitution of Liberty in Praise of Oligarchical Culture. <laughs>